We start with the billion dollar museum promised by the BC government. My email overwhelmed with people saying, are you kidding me? A billion bucks on a museum. There have got to be better uses for our money right now. One of the reasons government wants to build this new museum is they say the existing Royal BC Museum in Victoria is not earthquake proof. It could fall down in a quake. So we need a new one. We need an earthquake proof museum. What about schools? What about BC schools? Should we not seismically upgrade all BC schools before we even think of spending a billion bucks on an earthquake-proof museum? I've got education advocate Cindy Dalglish standing by here. First, have a listen to this. This one was in uh, the topic of the question period in the legislature yesterday. Here is a liberal MLA, Karen Kirkpatrick, yesterday. This NDP government's priority is a billion-dollar vanity museum project instead of student safety. One billion dollars would upgrade half the remaining schools that need seismic upgrading. Even Hume Park Elementary, in the Minister of Education's own writing, is unsafe and in need of seismic upgrades. Okay, so lots of people saying, let's upgrade our schools first before we build that museum. Let's discuss now with my guest, Cindy Dalglish. Cindy is a longtime education advocate in British Columbia. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Cindy, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Cindy, I just took a look this morning at the government's latest report on seismic risk to schools, and there are 250 public schools yeah. in B.C. that need to be seismically upgraded, correct? Yeah, for sure. What do you yeah, think of that uh, number? It's a huge number, um, but I have to go back to Karen Kirkpatrick. She has no legs to stand on. B.C. Liberals Good. didn't do any of the size. They did so little of the seismic upgrading over the years, um, and they had a long time to do that work. Um so, you know, don't want to, I know their opposition, I get that they're supposed to be pushing this, but I, I would love some reflection on that a little bit would be great. Good point. Good point. Do you think the government, though, is misreading the room here? Or do you think they've made a miscalculation when they say now is the time to spend a billion bucks on a museum? Well, I think you just hit it on the head. It's not that I'm opposed or I can't imagine people being opposed to wanting to protect and preserve the hist- historical aspects that the museum holds it's that right now we're coming out of covid there's a lot of other things on the on the bubble right now there's a lot of crisis crises happening within the province and it you're right it's reading the room they're not reading yeah. the room um it, it just does not make sense right now right let's listen to the education minister here speaking in the house yesterday uh, jennifer whiteside saying like look we're working on it we're we are upgrading these schools here's what she had to say since 2017 we funded 58 projects there's another uh, number of projects in the hopper we are committed to accelerating we've done more seismic upgrade projects members since the other side of the house ever did okay okay so she hit on the same point that you did there cindy saying the liberals weren't very don't have a great record on this themselves but when you take a look at that list of schools man that's a long list of 250 schools still waiting to be seismically upgraded your thoughts yeah, and I think if you look at the, the main areas that are, are hardest hit, 
that need this so badly, Richmond, Vancouver, uh, Nanaimo, Ladysmith, Victoria, these are main areas that, that need desperate attention in this. You know, we fought for a long time in Surrey to get capital infrastructure. It's happening. It is. Uh, it's slower than we need it to be. It's slower than anywhere. And $1 billion could go a long way to not only seismically upgrading, but I'm thinking even of the asbestos in a school. Yeah. I think of, you know, you're, when we're talking about the museum, it's people spending a few hours wandering through and doing their things in a museum, whereas our kids are in schools that are not seismically safe and are full of asbestos and lead for at least 30 hours a week, 10 months of the year. Um, The priority needs to be our schools and a museum. I mean, I know that there's a, a reconciliation piece to this, and I really love that direction. We can do reconciliation. Reconciliation does not need to be a building. Yeah, I think the asbestos point is a really good one because that is another reason that's been advanced by government for justifying this project. It's not only could the muse- the existing museum fall down in an earthquake, but there's also a lot of asbestos in there that they've got to deal with. But you're saying, what, there are a lot of schools that have asbestos too, right? Oh, yeah. Any of the yeah. schools that, are gonna be, that need this seismic upgrading, you can bet most of them will also have asbestos issues. You know, in Surrey here down the street from where I live, we have one elementary school that is full of lead and asbestos. Um, it's had its seismic upgrading, and it's had an addition. They didn't tear the building down. Yeah. They added yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that, like, right now, if they took that billion bucks and they put it into public schools for upgrading, what kind of a difference could that make? Like, the government is saying that these 250 schools that are effectively on a waiting list here to be seismically upgraded... We're getting to it, and they say they've got 800 million bucks ready to go on that in the outlying years. Still not a yeah. billion, but your thoughts? Yeah, no, and that's great. It's uh, how long is that, uh, what time period is that for? How yeah. quickly are these things being done? And would that billion dollars not push it faster to make things safer now? You know, I, again, I got to go back to, I know one of the things that they're, they're nervous about is if the building, the museum were to crumble, we lose a lot of the history and the artifacts. But I would counter that with what about the kids that are here right now and the histories that they're trying to build? If yeah. those schools crumble in an earthquake, we're losing our, our future. Cindy, so, thank you very much. Thanks for coming on today. I totally agree with you. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about the rise in youth crime being reported by the Vancouver police. Also, the Victoria Police Department also highlighting this as a major problem with a lot of youth mayhem, crime, assaults, vandalism and property damage seemingly on the rise here. Now, with this reported surge in youth crime, many people thinking back to those decisions to remove police officers from BC public schools. A lot of school districts are doing this, shutting down police liaison programs in public schools, notably in the city of Vancouver. That took place. I spoke to Victoria Police Chief Del Manic about this. He says they're having a lot of problems with youth crime in the capital city right now. He thinks it would make a difference to have police officers in schools. Here's what he said to me. We're quite confident that here locally, Uh, Our school boards and our parents support 
the police in schools. In fact, I'll leave you with this. A number of yeah. the youth that we engaged with this last weekend, Mike, told us that they actually miss having the school liaison officer. Okay, Victoria Police Chief Del Manick on the show earlier this week. Now, the other side of it, I also spoke to Hallelujah Hailu. She is a black high school student, recent graduate of Burnaby North Secondary School. She's a student activist, and she opposes police officers in schools. And here's what she had to say to me about police in schools and racism. Have a listen. My perspective being a woman of color is that you're ending up making a huge group of students, black and indigenous people of color, completely uncomfortable um, understanding like the history that RCMP do have with black and indigenous people of color. And a lot of my activism with police and schools comes uh, hand in hand with racism in schools, because I think if you're going to talk about police, you have to understand that historically the RCMP in Canada do come with a lot racism in school. All right. That's Hallelujah Hailu on the show earlier this week as well. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest Maro Francis. Maro is the executive director of the South Vancouver Community Policing Association and he supports school liaison officers in police officers in school. Maro, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hi Mike, thank you for having me. Maro, tell me your thoughts on police officers in schools. Why do you support this, these programs? Yes, yeah, so the uh, SLO program, and I'll be frank with you here, it saved me and uh, many other classmates from becoming prey to gangs and uh, other criminal elements in, in the school system. They worked in tandem with uh, different groups that would help youth, specifically the East End Boys Club, which is one I was a part of, and it's it's an integral part of our of our school system and provides amazing support for students. And it's, it's really a shame. It's really a shame what happened. Where did you go to high school? Templeton Secondary. And how do you, how did police officers in the program, you said they saved you. How did they save you? Well, they were able to identify some worrying signs about uh, possible affiliations or, or elements of recruitment within the school. You know, they, them being present were they were able to see what was going on and, you know, identifying with the tools that they have in law enforcement, uh, see what was going on and act on it. And uh, I'm extremely grateful for them. And, and when I heard what was happening, I thought it was just a, just a knee-jerk reaction, you know. The lives that uh, it'll impact is, is unforeseen. What do you think about what we just heard there from my previous guest, Hallelujah Hailu, who believes that, you know, there's a long history of yeah. racism associated with police. And she's, she felt that as a, a young woman of color, she, some of her other friends who are racial minorities said they didn't feel comfortable with police around in the school. Yeah, so I, I don't want to discount her, her personal experiences. Um, I'm just yeah. speaking from mine here. You know, I am also a, a person of color, uh, grew up in that school system. And uh, I'd, like to, I'd like to ask why these people feel uncomfortable because contrary to what some people might think, these officers weren't roaming the halls, you know, intimidating uh, school goers. It was specifically, they were most, they, they were counsel with a law enforcement background, right? So I, I'm wondering why was this, were there any efforts to remedy these concerns instead of just completely removing it? I just felt like it was totally brash and there was no, there was no thought process to it. So I'd, I'd love to ask her why she feels this way, if it's anything that those SLOs did, or if this is kind of a... Well, 
Well, I remember that she told me that she felt that police officers were following her around the school. She felt that maybe she was identified just because of her skin color. But let me play another clip here for for you from her and yeah. talking about this, about her own experience. And just because someone else has a different experience. Have a listen. Hallelujah. Hailu. Of course. If we have it. Do we, do we have that clip, Tim? Okay. A lot of people became extremely uncomfortable showing as much public support because of the level of harassment I got from people not believing that I had a specific experience. If somebody else has like a different story, then they're immediately like, yeah. no, that, that could have never possibly happened. Yeah, okay, so that's her point. She's saying yeah. that. But you, you said earlier you're not trying to discount what her experience was, though. Go ahead. No, not at all. Not at all. Everyone has their own lived experiences, and hers is yeah. just as important as everyone else's, right? Now, if that were to happen, there there are protocols to, you know, report this and have them remedied. So I'm just, uh, I don't think that that experience or a couple other experiences should have resulted in the complete removal of this program, right? I think there was room to work. There's room for improvement in everything. Right. And uh, I think that it should have been looked at and uh, her reports, if there were any, should have been taken seriously. Speaking, speaking of Mauro Francis from the South Vancouver Community Policing Association, we're talking about police liaison programs in schools. Many of them have been shut down. Uh, one of the other things that Hallelujah said to me, Mauro, for your thoughts was mm-hmm. that she said you don't need police officers in schools in order to keep kids safe or to have resources for kids in schools if they're having troubles or problems. She said, look, there are trained counselors there who can help kids. Here's what she had to say to me, then I'll get your thoughts. We already had people like that involved in our school. We had uh, safe school specialists, which were more trained counselor figures involved in schools. And the cops in schools weren't stationed in schools full-time. It was more a casual thing. It wasn't a constant police officer down every hallway. Yeah, so she says, look, there are counselors in schools for troubled kids. Your thoughts? Yeah, I I, I think that the SLOs had a specific skill set and tools. And and in being an officer, they had access to uh, all the resources that the VPD internally have to combat crime. I remember when there were things happening in the area, criminal elements, they were able to tie it in with things that were happening in the school. These, these counselors wouldn't have those tools to be able to combat uh, the crime that was happening. So it's multi-layered, right? And, and I just feel like the SLOs were another layer to preventing this crime from happening. Do you, um, think, do you think when we hear police officers and police chiefs in the last couple of weeks raising concerns about youth violence and youth crime, uh, we're hearing it in Vancouver, we're hearing it in Victoria... Do you think that's in any, in any way related to shutting down school liaison programs of police officers? Like, do you think if, if police officers were still in some of these schools, we'd see less of this right now? Uh, to be honest, yeah, I, I do. I, I can't say, you know, statistically, would there have been a direct impact? Um, yeah. It's more of a down-the-road kind of thing. It's very preventative. Um, but it, it's extremely concerning, and I honestly believe that they would have had a direct hand in combating it. And now that tool is no longer available. Schools are just kind of left to deal with it and kept it unchecked. And, and essentially teachers and principals are left to deal with, with these issues, right? And uh, they very likely don't have the tools to deal with this, with, you know, large groups of, of youth committing these, these violent crimes. So 
I, uh, I definitely think they could have intervened quickly. You know, they did on many occasions when I was younger, when, when there were kind of rumblings of something happening or something going on, they would intervene and it was dealt quickly and swiftly. Yeah. You mentioned that when you were in high school, you credit this program with steering you on a right path. And like, were you in danger? Did you say you were, you might've gotten involved with gangs? Well, no, I didn't directly get involved with gangs, but there was always the element, right? And, and being, you know, a younger kid, you, you're trying to find your way in life and there's many paths you can take. Right. And, and those paths were very available at the time. You know, I'm, I'm sure the school is, changed a bit since then but um there were many paths many paths i could have taken and uh, the program like i said in tandem with the east end uh, boys club essentially saved me they, they made sure that i was at, at the meetings um you know had a good relationship with the slo and i i don't want to know where i would have been without them right yeah one of the things that i talked to hallelujah about in our earlier interview we talked about this reported surge in youth youth violence, youth crime, and mm-hmm. what is, what's causing that? Like, what is the reason for that? And she made the argument that it's not because the, the, there are no police officers in schools anymore. She thinks it's due to social isolation because of COVID, for example. Here's what she had to say to me, and then I'll get your thoughts. This surge of youth violence isn't that, oh, police officers are in school, kids are going to immediately act wild and crazy. It's more kids, especially the younger kids, not being very socialized after being locked at home. And when you're at that age of getting used to adolescence and not being able to interact with people, violence and anger is not exactly the best reaction, but it's a reaction that young people gravitate towards. Mauro, what do you think of that? Yeah, I wouldn't blame it specifically on COVID. Um, you know, kids in groups, it's very easy to get them <laughs> riled up, rowdy, you know, mischievous. And uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's a natural thing. And without um, the checks and balances of, of authoritative figures like teachers and SLOs um, left unchecked, uh, things like what we're seeing will and can and will happen. So I think that uh, it's, it's multifaceted. There's lots of things that can prevent this, like the SLO program is, for the most part, preventative in, in their presence. Um, but I, I wouldn't specifically say it's COVID. There is, there is a, an aspect of, of uh, mischief, of course, with, with younger yeah. kids. Um, and you know what? Sure, maybe, maybe due to COVID, people weren't seeing each other. But I, I find it hard to believe that because kids were in isolation, suddenly they just want to start attacking people. I just Bottom line is that you think that these these programs, the police liaison officers in schools, should be brought back, correct? 100%. All right, welcome back. Talking about police in schools programs with my guest, Mauro Francis. Lots of calls on this one. Ross and Coquitlam. Hi, Ross. Go ahead. Hi there. Uh, I'm a former principal. I'm retired and uh, on my way to cycle the seawall, so that's the, the life I'm leading now. But I can tell you that when I was working... Uh, I, I was administrator uh, before the police liaison officers were in the school and after. And I can tell you it was a great program. I worked with both the RCMP and Coquitlam and in Port Moody with the Port Moody Police. They always chose officers that were uh, to fill out those roles that were excellent with youth. And uh, I found the program outstanding. And I was shocked and really uh, disappointed to see that cancelled in different uh, school districts around the province. Ross, thank you for calling in. It's great to get the perspective of uh, a a former principal. 
Mara, what do you think of that? Because I know when I've spoke to officers who were involved in this police liaison program, they they selected officers who obviously were going to be good communicators with kids, are going to be empathetic with kids, but they also chose uh, diverse officers. They wanted a diverse core of officers in schools. Are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm really happy to hear that. Um, previous caller there, and his, I think his sentiments ring true with a lot of people. And uh, I, uh, it's no mistake that the officers were great with youth. Um, the yeah. fact that they were diverse. And, I mean, it wouldn't work otherwise. And the DPD did the work to recruit these officers into these positions. And every officer that I had met were amazing, amazing people. So it's, 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 not, it's not a mistake that these, uh, these officers had the skills to, to yeah. speak with youth and, and, and get on their level. Right. Shella calling from Kelowna. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Good. Um, my daughter was just actually um, assaulted in school recently in West Kelowna here. And I'm just on board with having some sort of police presence. I think it would make a huge difference, even just having somebody that the kids could run to um, if they were feeling threatened. Um, I do think it would help just having somebody, you know, around the schoolyard that would just sort of be watching. Um, In my situation, the teachers didn't even get involved. They just sort of let it happen. And I do think some sort of presence would be a great uh, a great idea for the schools. There seems to be a lot of violence uh, lately, um, not not just in Kelowna, but in Victoria and all sorts of cities all through BC right now. Yeah, yeah, Chella, thank you for calling. I'm sorry that happened to your daughter, but yeah, that is one of the primary functions of the program is kids uh, kids need help. A cop is there. Jennifer in White Rock. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Hi. Yes. Um, I'm glad you're uh, talking about this today. I've worked for 30 years in anti-violence work. Um, I did work uh, volunteering-wise with victim services with two detachments. But uh, since then, I've done a lot of work in this area. And the key thing is is that these police officers do have a unique set of skills. They're usually very well matched to working with youth, as one of your other callers talked about. Um, They're involved in community projects outside of that, so we use them a lot for referral processes. It connects the counselors better with the issues that are coming up. And many of the counselors within the schools, they really have a a high caseload, and it's very hard to keep up on what's going on. And so this connection that these officers have goes beyond just the student, and it helps the counselors, it helps the teachers, it helps our community. And with victim services, oftentimes, too, uh, we were seeing them at our table, you know, at our board meetings, in our community projects that we all do outside of our main job. So All right, they, Jennifer, thank you. Thank you for calling and sharing that. I wish we had more time because we have more callers that we can't get to right now. So we'll just have to return to this topic. Maro, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. I, uh, As you can see, there's so many people who are, are very experienced and talented people who yeah. have great things to say about this program. And, you know, yeah. I just, I I just want to... Yeah, no, very much. And I just want to end it off with... Yeah, all right. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the royal visit now. Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, have wrapped up their whirlwind tour of Canada. Yesterday, the royal couple met with Indigenous leaders and learned about the experience of Indigenous children in residential schools. Here's Prince Charles speaking yesterday. 
I have greatly appreciated the opportunity to discuss with the Governor-General the vital process of reconciliation in this country. Not a one-off act, of course, but an ongoing commitment to healing, respect, and understanding. Okay, the royal tour here. Uh, I don't think it was exactly Charles mania out there. I mean, some, a lot of people did show up because they wanted to see Prince Charles. Here's a little sampling of some of the reaction of people who came out to see the royals. They're peaceful and they go and they, they're fundraisers, you know, they're, and they're part of our identity. Even though time has moved on and I do have my doubts about the future of this monarchy, there is a connection. But I'm here today just to see a future king. Okay, whenever we have a royal tour, it always sort of sparks that debate. Is it time for Canada to cut the ties, get rid of the monarchy, and maybe become a republic? Barbados did that recently. Should Canada do the same thing? Okay, we've got a fantastic panel for you. Tom Freda on the line. Tom is the co-founder of Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Thanks again for coming on, Tom. Anytime, Mike. Okay, also on the line is Bruce Halzer. Bruce is with the Monarchist League of Canada. Big supporter of the monarchy. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Mike. Hi, Tom. All, all right, gentlemen. Thank you for both Hello. of you for being here. I think we got the, the two best possible guests on the topic. Bruce, let me go to you first with the royal visit. It seemed kind of like a low-key visit by Charles and Camilla. What did you think of it? Well, I, I think it was a short visit, but certainly um, the crowds that he got in the Northwest Territories and, and Newfoundland were about as big a crowd as you could draw in those places, and and they were uh, very very enthusiastic. Uh, it was a very quick trip to Ottawa, and there was a, a lot on the agenda that was by private invitation only. But I, you know, I think uh, I thought it was a good visit. I just wish it was longer, and I wish they had time to. Uh, to cross more of the country. Yeah, it was a short visit. Do you think, Bruce, that it shows it still shows though Canada's connection to the monarchy and that Canadians want to keep the monarchy? Oh, I think so. I think Canadians uh, always vote with their feet when there's when there's a royal visit. I I know that in the last few years with the pandemic and uh, and everything else, there haven't been any visits since. And, and uh, what's happening this summer has been fairly organized at the last minute because we just weren't sure about public events. But there's no doubt uh, in my mind, I, living here in Victoria, that if uh, Charles had come here, there would have been a big crowd and an enthusiastic crowd, as there was uh, in in the short visit uh, right. done on pretty short notice that he did have. Okay, Tom Freda, Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Bruce says that there's still enthusiasm for the monarchy in Canada. What do you think? Well, uh, opinion polls say otherwise, uh, but let me just correct one uh, probable misconception that your listeners may have. Uh, what we advocate, having a Canadian as our head of state rather than a monarch, uh, in no way takes away from Canadians' feelings for the royals or our historical or cultural connection with Britain and the royal family. Um, we're not against royal visits. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, the number of people who go to, sh to see the, the royals when they, when they come to Canada uh, as your clip said, uh, not everybody is 100% in favor of continuing with the constitutional link to the royals. So uh, they visit countries all over the world, uh, countries that have no connection to Britain, countries that are part of the Commonwealth and are already republics, and they're equally well received. So 
there's I, we don't see a connection. And as a matter of fact, I don't think dislike of the royals or the monarchy uh, in so far as the cultural aspect and the historical aspect. I don't see Canadians being against that. What's driving the opinion polls that say that we should have a Canadian head of state is the fact that it's the 21st century and it just simply does not make sense for Canada to share its head of state with any other country. And it doesn't make sense for us to not have a Canadian fill that role, a role that should be done from here. Okay, Bruce Halzer, what do you say to that? Well, I think that uh, Canada's story as a country is is tied in with with the Commonwealth, and that we're an outward-facing country that uh, that enjoys the connections we have with uh, other countries around the world throughout the Commonwealth. I think that's one of the things that makes Canada such a great um, multicultural, outward-facing nation, uh, and makes Canada a better place to live than. Uh, the republic south of the border and and many other republics and i don't think canadians at all feel diminished by the fact that we have this connection to our heritage and our history and i don't think canadians feel put upon by uh, by our constitutional arrangements we're we're a free society we're a democracy and we're one of the best places in the world to live and we've always been a monarchy and that's a big part of yeah. uh, how we became such a great country i think tom your thoughts well, most of that I don't disagree with. Uh, we have, we're a first world country, we're a G7 country, we're an active member of the Commonwealth. None of that changes. Most members of the Commonwealth are already republics, and so there's no reason to expect our leadership role in the Commonwealth to change. Uh, the, the, what, I do, what I do disagree with, though, is that Canadians are increasingly saying that it's time for change, and the opinion polls back this up. One even said uh, this spring that 21% of Canadians uh, of respondents said that uh, they don't want the monarchy to continue after a prince uh, after Queen Elizabeth dies. Uh, 67% absolutely do not want Prince Charles to become the next king of Canada, the monarch of Canada. And another one, 26% do not want the monarchy to continue into the future. Um, now, that's pretty low figures. That's, uh, that's not a very strong endorsement for an institution that uh, your guest says that we've always had. There are lots of things that we've always had that we shouldn't have going into the future. And we think a constitutional connection to an overseas monarch. Now, keep in mind that Canada's head of state lives on another continent what does that say for our independence? What does, that, what does that say to the world? Does that say that we are an independent country when our head of state doesn't live here and Canadians can't even choose our head of state and we can't even have a Canadian citizen as our head of state? That really doesn't speak well for our independence. Bruce Halzer, what do you say to that? I don't think anyone around the world looks at Australia or Canada or Jamaica or any of the other Commonwealth realms, and says, oh, those are not independent countries. I think we have a strong identity in the world, and uh, I, I, I just don't, I don't share that, and I don't think most Canadians share that. And sure, uh, opinion polls go up and down on various things. Uh, the whole point of the monarchy is that it's not politics. It's not something where we need to follow opinion polls and where they go. And, you know, uh, other, other Commonwealth realms have had similar opinion polls and have had governments that wanted to get rid of the crown. And every time it's gone to a referendum anywhere, 
the people have voted to keep the crown. Uh, it's one thing to answer an opinion poll in, in a particular climate and say, okay, maybe theoretically this uh, this doesn't make sense, depending on how the question is asked. It's another thing when you actually have to choose an alternative and decide if you're going to give up part of your history and your heritage. And so far, whenever there's that question has been put to the people, even in places where the polls suggested otherwise, at the end of the day in the ballot box, people have chosen the crown. And I'm hey, confident they would do so in Canada if, they're, if that happened. Hey, Bruce, do you think, though, that just picking up on some of Tom's points there about some of the opinion polling that we've seen, I mean, do you think Prince Charles would be a good king? Because obviously there's there's less affection for him than there is for Queen Elizabeth, who's widely loved. I mean, there's less love for Charles out there, don't you think? Look, uh, Queen Elizabeth's popularity is sort of in the 70 to 80% range. And obviously, uh, Charles's is less than that. I think, you know, the people, that's a tough act to follow. But I think in Canadians, in fairness, when the time comes, we'll look at Charles and see that he's a person who cares greatly about issues, who respects his role as a, a neutral constitutional monarch, but uh, we'll, we'll find a way. And I think that uh, Canadians will accept that. I mean, it's, it's something we haven't gone through for 70 okay. years as a change of monarch, and it's going to take some getting used to. But I don't think Canadians are, are going to feel a need to, uh, to change our system of government just because Her Majesty's gone and uh, somebody who's less popular is going to be the next king. Tom, do you have a brief response to that? And then we'll fit a break in here. Your thoughts? Well, well uh, here, uh, this is going to be different from my last statement, but I disagree completely with everything he said there. Uh, polls have not been going up and down. They've been going constantly down, down, down for the monarchy. And of the, of the 20 or 30 polls that have been taken over the last 25 years, only two have shown support for the monarchy increasing, and they've both been during royal visits. Uh, the referendums that have been having that have been happening in the Commonwealth, there have been two, Australia and uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, both of them were polls that were taken that divided Republican opinion between in Australia uh, how to select their head of state. And in uh, Vince, St. Vincent and the Grandines, it was uh, uh, they had a whole bunch of other things thrown in with the, with the referendum that a lot of the people disagreed with. So uh, uh, those are not good examples. Uh, the monarchy is plummeting in popularity all across the Commonwealth. It's just a matter of time. It's inevitable that uh, Britain will be the only Commonwealth realm left with the Queen or a monarch as head of state. Okay. And I think Canadians just have to recognize that this is going to happen, and it's not a matter of uh, uh, if, it's when. All right. Talking about the royal tour, Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, they've wrapped up their short visit to Canada should Canada drop the monarchy and become a republic? We've got both sides of it for you. Tom Freda, Canadian, Citizens for a Canadian Republic. Bruce Halser from the Monarchist League. Let's go to your calls. Chris in Chilliwack. Hi, Chris. What do you think? Good morning. I think uh, your one guest hit the nail on the head by saying the, the reason for the monarchy, which I'm a strong supporter of, is that it is non-political and it provides a great deal of stability for any democracy and certainly for Canada. Uh, because it's based on tradition and precedent, not on the whims of the politicians of the day. Okay, Tom, what do you say to that? All of what your caller said can apply to an elected parliamentary republic and an an elected uh, parliamentary republican head of state. Uh, There is absolutely no reason why a a parliamentary president 
which would basically be a continuation of our governor general, needs to be political. Lots of countries have apolitical heads of state in parliamentary republics around the world. Nothing against that. As a matter of fact, that's what I personally prefer. And I think, I think most Canadians prefer that. So there's no reason to think that that's, that's going to change. And okay. as far as the continuation of our, our parliamentary traditions, nothing needs to change in that respect either. Uh, all we're talking about is severing the constitutional link between our governor general and the monarchy. And so far as uh, uh, how our government works, uh, the prosperity of republics versus monarchies, there's no difference. And our um, data on our website proves that. No Let's difference do- at all. Let's go to Doc on the line in Port Moody. Hi, Doc. Go ahead. Good morning. So I guess I'm a little curious as to other benefits uh, to the to Canada, but I'm also really interested. What is the financial cost to Canada of being connected to the monarchy? I I, I don't know that I've ever seen anything about what the financial costs are. Bruce Halzer, do you know? So. No member of the royal family draws any salary from from Canadian taxpayers. The monarchy essentially is free. Um, We do pay for the cost of lieutenant governors and uh, governor general. But, uh, you know, as Tom suggests, if we were a republic, we would have people in those kind of positions anyway. I would argue costing us at least as much, if not more. So uh, I think, you know, there's no real cost to the monarchy. Of course, when... uh, a member of the royal family's here, like <coughs> Prince Charles has been. We we pay for their security and 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 their travel as uh, while they're here. But that's that's sure. also not much. I think that the cost of all the royal institutions in Canada together represents uh, a couple of dollars a year for a Canadian taxpayer. It's, Tom, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I agree. There, uh, <clears throat> the cost aspect is not a, an argument. Uh, you know. A host country is obligated to pay the cost of visiting heads of state. So whoever's the monarch of the United Kingdom, when they come to visit Canada as a member of the Commonwealth, we would still cover the the security costs. Um, And as far as the operation of the governor general's office and that of the lieutenant governors, uh, that wouldn't necessarily change much at all, just the connection to the monarch. Uh, One thing that would change, though, uh, because we have uh, the royal family, coming here, uh, not just the Queen, but uh, there are something like 14 or 15 members of the royal family that, uh, as a, a realm, we cover their costs to come visit here. So all the, ch- the Queen's children, grandchildren, <clears throat> but we don't do that when other heads of state come here. We don't pay them for their family members. So in that respect, it would be cheaper. We would not be obligated to cover uh, the costs of the family members of uh, visiting heads of state. Hey, guys, we just got a minute and a half left, so I'll just split it between you to sum up. But, Tom, when Bruce said that if this ever went to a referendum in Canada, he feels that the monarchy would survive that and would re- be retained in Canada. Do you agree with that, or do you think it would be voted down in a referendum? Real, real brief response there. Well, I can't make a prediction, but I do know the last opinion poll on this, uh, where Canadians were asked, do you think Canada should continue as a constitutional monarchy for generations to come? Uh, People uh, said no to that. In other words, they do not want the monarchy to continue. That that carried in every single province in Canada. And uh, only 26% wanted to keep the monarchy. And important to, to note here, uh, the constitutional amending formula has often been touted as an obstacle. 91% of those who believe they want it to end, the monarchy, okay. 
they say it's worth changing the Constitution to allow it, despite the difficulty. So there's Bruce literally Hall, no obstacle here. Bruce Hall, sir, you got 20 seconds to wrap up. Go ahead. Canadians have no appetite for a huge constitutional debate. And the one thing that Tom and his, uh, his side hasn't done is tell you why we need to change. What would be better about Canada? There's an interesting esoteric argument about maybe having a head of state who's not a royal. But what would it be better the next day about our country? And people okay. who want to make a big change need to make that case, and you haven't heard it today. All right, here we go now with the Broadway plan debate in Vancouver, the hotly contested plan here for densified housing along the Broadway corridor. It includes several planned high-rise towers in that area. Thousands of people expected to move into the area over the next few years. Man, you talk about a debate that's going on in our city over this one. There's lots of support for this plan for people who say we need the housing, we need the density. Others, though, especially in neighborhoods like Kitsilano, saying it would destroy the character of these neighborhoods with these high-rise towers. All right, let's discuss it now. I've got two of the best uh, advocates on both sides of it for you. Bill Thielman, pleased to welcome him back to the show. He's opposed to the plan. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Okay, also have Kit Souter on the line. Uh, Kit supports the plan. Hey, Kit, thank you for doing this. Good to talk to you today, Mike. Okay, thank you to both of you guys for coming on. And you guys have already been, re- I know you're ready to rumble here because you've both been <laughs> duking it out on social media here in advance of this. So, Kit, let me go to you first. Like, why do you, why do you support this plan at this time? Why do you think we need it? Yeah, so, I mean, Mike, broader context here, uh, we're coming out of the last 30 years, which have been the longest sustained period of growth with low interest rates in all of human history. And uh, I don't know if anyone's noticed, you just had off the top from uh, from international news that we've got conflict in the Baltic, we've got uh, disruption in the Middle East. And uh, the last time interest rates were this high, MC Hammer was top of the charts. And I'll tell you what, Mike, me and other renters, we're tired of getting hammered. So the reason that we want to see more affordable rentals built, the reason that we support the Broadway plan moving forward is because the plan does a good job of squaring sustainable growth for the city over the next 30 years. I'll be 64 when the plan's done. And it also makes sure to invest in the community. We're talking about $1.1 billion over 10 years driven into KISS, Fairview, Mount Pleasant. That includes half a million dollars for affordable housing, $96 million for parks, including John Robson, Dude Chilling, and Burrard Slopes. Seventy-seven million for community centers and eighty-five million dollars for childcare. I think it's a good plan. I think it's good for the city, and I want to see it done. Okay, Bill Tillman, your thoughts? Well, it sounds wonderful. It sounds really great, but it's not what's going to happen, Mike. Unfortunately, there's thousands of renters who are in low-rise rental all along the Broadway corridor who will be displaced. There's a um, fantasy land renters protection plan that the mayor and and some parts of council are supporting and saying that we're going to pick you up, move you into some temporary housing for three to five years, pay your moving costs, and move you back at uh, a lower rent than when you left in a brand new place. Um, you know, I could sell you the Bird Street Bridge if you really believe that. I don't think that's going to happen. I think what we're going to see is massive demo evictions, as the Vancouver Tenants Union has said in its report, as other people have pointed out. And we're looking at uh, a situation where there's been minimal to no consultation or democratic engagement. There's never been a single public hearing where the public could attend and and learn and talk about uh, together about this proposal in two and a half, well, in four years. Uh, it's a thousand towers over 500 blocks, two towers per block, uh, 20 to 40 story towers all over the city. And if you think those are all going to be affordable housing, you, you have to be absolutely nuts. It's not going to work that way. Yeah. Now, Mike, this, this is emblematic of the kind of narrative that Bill's been trying to build. 
for everyone listening, this is the absolutely ridiculous behavior of a huckster trying to use a shell game for your fear and hoping that you do not look up until all of your friends and family have been shoved out of the city and all you're left with is pocket link and nostalgia. This is absolutely <laughs> unacceptable behavior. Oh, come the, the on. Get, blocks, get, get a grip, kid. 485 yeah. blocks, only 85 of them even have room for towers above 12 stories. You're doing math that isn't true, and you're trying to terrify older renters and people who are in the most precarious positions. It's completely unacceptable behavior, and you're doing it because you don't want your pocket of perfection to change one little bit. I believe we should have room in our city for growth, investment, and opportunity for our kids. Bill. Well, I suggest, I suggest you read the Broadway plan a little more carefully than that. What we're talking about is a massive number of towers. They are all over the city from 1st, or False Creek to 16th, from Vine Street in the west to Clark in the east. There is a huge, huge number of concrete towers that will be, we've already seen, the council just passed 39 stories at Broadway and Granville. Uh, that's going to be the, the norm for around that area. Lower rays, uh, but still 20 to 40 in many other parts of this uh, entire corridor. Kit. And, um, you know, you can, you can jump up and down and make noises if you like about it. But when you see veteran developers and architects like Michael Geller, like Brian Palmquist, like uh, Professor Patrick Condren at UBC Urban Planners, NDN, all saying, hold it a minute, this is really problematic, coming from a wide variety of different perspectives, um, I say, yeah, we better hold it. And if this is such a great plan, kit, why don't we put it on the ballot? Let's have the voters of Vancouver mm. decide and not 11 people at city council. Yeah. So you want to talk about ballots, Bill. You were the one who fought against the HST. You were yes, the one who fought indeed. the TransLink referendum. You believe that people should pay less and get more service. And I'm telling you right now that when we put in a multi-billion dollar subway line besides single family homes, someone has to pay for the protections and the amenities. Okay. Well, they'll pay, all right, when and they get demo-evicted. That's what will happen. They'll pay. But if you want to talk about the HST, which is to 11 years ago now, that's fine. Uh, you know, you, you and your party and your friends were supporting it, and the people were against it. Hey, Bill, yeah, let, me ask, you- let me ask you this, Bill. With, the, with regard to the high-rise towers that would be part of this plan, I mean, you guys have disagreed on how many towers potentially could be built and, and, they're, and they're, how tall they would be, but... What is wrong with high-rise towers anyway? I mean, we need housing. There's really not a lot of... Where are we supposed to build? I mean, we got mountains on one side. we got an ocean on another side. we got housing pressure and tens of thousands of people looking for a place to live. Don't you have to build up? Well, first, Mike, it, it should be through... Uh, sure, I mean, the West End people, uh, lots of people there like towers. There's lots of towers there. If people in neighborhoods and communities and across the city think it's a good idea, that's fine. But having it imposed and then say, well, you agreed to have a SkyTrain line, so you have to deal with 40-story towers all along there. That's not democracy. That's not fair to the people either. Uh, I think it's obvious Kit doesn't want this to go to a ballot, doesn't want the people of the city to vote in a democratic way. I don't, I don't understand what's wrong with that. But this is, you know, we have all sorts of models and choices. We don't see 40-story high-rises at the Paris Metro, at Barcelona, Vienna, at Amsterdam. They have much more gentle density, lower rise, and a much better plan than what the Broadway plan looks like, that's for sure. Okay, let's talk about Paris then. Okay, Bill? When we talk about Paris, we're talking about a city that has, over the course of the last four years, transformed itself. They did it because Mayor Anne Hidalgo took her time, and she went out and she talked to people. And it occurred over the same time period that the consultation on the Broadway plans occurred. When you say that no one's had a public hearing, three neighborhood houses, Kiss, Mount Pleasant, 
and in Fairview have all had hundreds of people attend over the course of the last two years. There have been hundreds of thousands of individual points of contact committed to by the city. I've myself been a part of 15 hours of public consultations online and in person. There has well, been time. This, there's no, been due diligence. Not one, not bill. one public hearing. Uh, they did a survey. They got 11,276 responses. I'm looking at the city's own documents here. Uh, there was no hearings. There was a, a website and a couple of neighborhood houses where you could walk through and, and talk to people. That is not democratic engagement, Kit, and you know well, it. People elect their governments to lead them. In 15 years of volunteering in politics, the thing that I hear most consistently at the doors is that they want their leadership to get on with it. Hey, Kit, let me ask you this. There's been concerns raised about the lack of green spaces or, or expanded parks uh, in, the, in the area where these towers would go up. How do you respond to that? Yeah, well, I mean, the, uh, the Broadway plan summary has capital investment plans committed to in a public benefit strategy for the next 10 years, Mike. It's more than $100 million of investment per year should this plan go ahead. And specific to parks, it's got $96 million earmarked for John Robson, Dude Chilling, and the building out of the Burrard Slopes project, which would add a new park in between Kits and Fairview. Okay, Bill, is that adequate? No. Not at all. I mean, if you look at some of the modeling, and of course, I think it's quite telling. Kit objects to the rendering done by veteran architect Brian Palmquist and, uh, and uh, uh, Bachelor of Architecture or Landscape Stephen Bohus, but the city won't even put out a plan. They won't even put out a legitimate plan. They've got a, a shot from far away with three colors on it, and that's it. So, I, I mean, there's no way you can put up uh, two towers per block, 40 stories high, and say, oh, no problem. We'll just put in a little park. It'll be in the shade all day. I mean, good grief. You, you know, just use right. some common sense. All right, we're debating the Broadway plan in Vancouver. Both sides of it for you, Bill Thielman, Kit Souter. we got a full phone board, Mark and Coquitlam. Hi, Mark, go ahead. A uh, quick point. The land west of Arbutus is sandstone. That limits the height to which you can build, especially in an earthquake-prone area. Okay, is that correct, Kit? Uh, well, it's also irrelevant because the plan doesn't extend past the line, which is east of Arbutus. Uh, we've got bedrock stretching from the Arbutus Ridge all the way out to East Coquitlam. And uh, the seismic capacity for build actually would allow, just like in Burnaby, heights of 60 to 80 stories. But a compromise has been met to uh, deal with the backlash led by Bill Thielman uh, to heights above 40. Bill? Well, I don't think that's really a super relevant point. But what we clearly see is a plan where you've got 20 to 40 stories uh, all along almost all of the Broadway corridors, certainly in the center areas, um, very, very high buildings. And uh, that's what people are concerned about. You know, Mike, we talked about renters being displaced. Take a yeah. look at the Douglas Copeland building. It's just a story online today. Uh, the residents there were uh, demo-evicted, or renovicted, I should say. It's been renovated totally. Two bedrooms start at 4250 up. The residents got double the provincial compensation package, $10,000 each. So that, that landlord is going to make that money back in less than a, uh, probably six months, and those people are out, and now they've got to find somewhere right. where in a city where rents went up 30%. Brian okay, on the let's line. Talk and... about, let's talk about that margin, though, Mike, just before we throw to the next caller, because okay. the rent protections that are in this plan actually manage to bring rents down. The proposal sure, by the mayor... Where are you going to bring rent down with the Broadway plan, are you? The, the proposal by the mayor extends... Oh my gosh. So the people can choose either 20% below market rate or the same rent that people are paying when they're displaced. And I went through the numbers, Mike. A one bedroom would be more than 35% below what I'm paying right now in a purpose built rental. A two bedroom would be more than 30% below. And even a three bedroom and den, which would be a huge move up for my family, would still be almost 10% below the price of what I'm paying in rent. 
Bill, so you're not you're not buying it. So you trust Kennedy Stewart and his plot on this? It really, you got you got to give your head a shake. It's Vancouver. This is already an actual example I'm giving you, and you're trusting a pie in the sky plan that is not going to hold up. And also, most of this, Mike, is is market rental. The market just went up thirty percent. Yeah, Brian on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Brian. Go ahead. This is a this is a great conversation. I'd like to say first that I think both your panels are right and wrong. One's being too pessimistic and one's being too optimistic. We're definitely going to have rent evictions, but we're going to have enough housing supply that's going to put so much pressure on on prices. It's probably going to drop region wide, not just in that area. My only complaint is all the development being done in Broadway. I want to move to Vancouver, but I don't want to live anywhere near Broadway. So as far as I'm concerned, the development for Vancouver should be spread out throughout the entire city, not just one area. But I, I, I'd like to say that I think if you, the middle point is going to be between your two panelists. It's going to be good and bad, and just it's in the middle okay. point of what they both say. Bill Thielman, go ahead. Well, I think that the uh, the pessimistic side is understandable because we're in Vancouver. We've seen over the four years of this city council, we've seen the rents go up astronomically, housing prices go up astronomically, despite all that they said they're doing to help us. And so that when they say, look, we need to give you even more help, I'd say, look at your track record. What you're doing hasn't worked. This thing should be put off. Uh, we should have it either on the ballot or defer it till the next council. Okay. This council, the, the, the gas tank is empty on this council. It stops in October. Kit, Kit, go ahead. So, so, Mike, Brian's point's really good here. And I'd just like to say to the listeners, the reason that this is uh, so far apart is because Bill is pushing so hard. I wrote a letter into council submitting more than a half dozen proposals for amendment and improvement of the Broadway plan, including making sure that we've got HVAC improvements, with count- which council already proposed, to protect renters so that they have cooling as well as heating as we face more heat domes, to put in a AAA bike lane infrastructure. And the reason that I'm fighting so hard for this is because Brian... Uh, we want to make sure that when the Broadway plan goes through, it sets a precedent for the rest of the city. We want to make sure that Bill and his supporters are taken at their word and they walk alongside us in championing in the Vancouver plan that everywhere in the city of Vancouver, we can build four and six and eight unit multiplexes so that we can actually achieve a scope and scale, a walkability like Paris. Okay, Peter on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Peter. Go ahead. Oh, hi, thanks for having me on. Look, I've got a question for, um, for both panels. But Bill, you opposed a city initiative that would have made it easier for non-profit and co-op housing providers to build six floors of social housing in some areas of the city. You also opposed the streamlining rental program that would have made it easier to build rental housing in other parts of the city. So if we can't build taller buildings in Broadway or six-floor non-profit housing anywhere else, where should housing be going? And okay. why shouldn't it go on the SkyTrain just because you don't like tall buildings? Thank you, Peter. Sadly, we just have one minute left, so I'm going to yeah. give you 30 seconds each, okay? Bill, go ahead. Uh, it's not about me, number one. Number two, I oppose having uh, buildings over height, over density, with no public hearing, which is what that proposal was by Councillor Christine Boyle. No public hearing. Suddenly you wake up one morning and you got a six-story next to you and you never even knew it was coming. It's about democracy here, and there's a democratic deficit at this city council. Kit. And I'll say this, Mike. I live in a six-story purpose-built rental on Kingsway, exactly like the ones that Bill Thielman has made a habit of opposing over the course of the last two years. It is only big enough for me, my wife, and my two-year-old daughter, and we need more space to have a second child. I'm fighting for every renter in the city. I'll keep fighting for protections, and I will make sure that this plan gets compromised, improved, and passed. And then we can fight an election over it. 